How are we doing? Oh, yes. <laughs> I can feel the thunder. Um, so, October, we've entered that month. Perhaps more of you are concerned with the fact that we've entered midterms. So, the week before fall break, you have to earn it, and then the week after, you have to earn it again. So, welcome to Davidson. Um, I'm glad to be here. I hope you are too. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin, and I'm always stepping that light. Um, and I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Um, really, we're just a Christian campus ministry um, that exists for the believer and the unbeliever, for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the spontaneous and the person who likes to plan out being surprised. For the student who runs Davidson, you head all the clubs, you host all the perspectives, and you're on a first-name basis with almost all of the faculty. And the student who is running from Davidson, right? Your daytime looks like naps interrupted by class, and your nighttime looks like Netflix or video games interrupted by homework. So the whole point is, RUF exists for those of you who think that Christianity is cute but unrealistic, and those who think that Christianity is raw and real, uh, and looks like life. And so, in other words, whoever you are, um, however you are, wherever you are tonight, thanks for coming. We hope that you feel welcomed. Um, we at RUF hope to get to know you, and we hope that you get to know RUF. And so, my encouragement already is to, to plan on some snackeration afterwards. Um, in the back, there's some good stuff that uh, some wonderful people came, and actually one of them came down with a fever. They were going to come, but then they decided not to give you the fever. So, anyway, so this semester in large group, we've been looking at the letter to the Hebrews. And the letter to the Hebrews is by an unknown author to an unknown audience. Uh, we do know it's in the second half of the Bible, really like the last third, and that's called the New Testament. And although we don't know the exact author or the exact location, I've said this every week and I think it bears repeating, that the point of Hebrews is very clear. It's crystal clear. It's addressing a question that we all have, a question that we've had for 2,000 years since the very beginning. And that question is, why is life, in particular, why is the Christian life so difficult sometimes? Why is it so hard to be a Christian? Why is it so hard to be on this planet in general? And you see this, in this letter, God is speaking through it to a people like us who are struggling to believe. And whether that's to believe tonight in Jesus at all, for the first time, or maybe it's to believe again, seriously, tonight, once more, and to live with a hope, a hope that's not paper-thin optimism, but also isn't covers-over-your-head pessimism. Okay, And so... Like the rest of Hebrews, our passage tonight is speaking into the cultural doubts and the personal struggles that we have. Um, And it tells us this, and I think it's really beautiful. God gets it. He gets it at a fundamental, personal level. And God is offering us something precious and enduring amidst all of the confusion. But would you pray with me first before we look together at our lives and at how God... Uh, is intimately understanding them. Father, I'm glad and grateful for this opportunity to open your word. I know that our minds and hearts are in a thousand places right now. I know mine is, and I pray that you'd still it and help remind me that you're God and I'm not. And I pray that you'd be with everyone here, that you'd give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, 
and your truth and your beauty to behold you and to become more like you to see you as you are even for a moment as you truly are even just your backside glory I pray Father that you would lift up your son Jesus you'd help us to see his importance you'd help unpack what it means to be a high priest that you'd help all of these things cast light on the many different thoughts and feelings that are flitting over our hearts right now we ask these things in Jesus' name Amen so after I graduated Davidson oh so long ago I taught for three years at an all boys prep school in Bethesda, Maryland okay, just outside of D.C. In many ways, this was a dream first job. Can we talk about that? I was 23 years old, and I got paid to live and work on rolling hills with old field stone buildings covered with ivy. I regularly wore my dad's old tweed jackets, and I lectured boys in coat and tie about literature and the good life. In class, I was actually very fond of walking with my hands behind my back and then turning for effect and kind of pretending to cast the seeds of knowledge on them. <laughs> and I was only half joking. So, <laughs> uh, look, I, and then when I grew weary of all the, all the classroom stuff and all the drama and the parents and the grading and the classroom management, I would just go to this majestic library. I don't know if some of you went to schools with these sort of places, but it was like two stories with a spiral wrought iron staircase, like old English wood paneling, cloth-covered books, and chandeliers that were just like silver and uh, ornate. And if that didn't cheer my pretentious heart, I would go to the porch outside of my faculty apartment, and then I would sit cross-legged and smoke a pipe and pretend that I was C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien. (laughs) This is all true, sadly. (laughs) It's not that exaggerated. (laughs) So eventually the the magic of teaching wore off for me, um, and the trips to the chandeliered library and the pipe-smoking porch just couldn't do what they used to be able to do to my heart, and I was feeling dissatisfied increasing with teaching and feeling more and more called more and more moved to go into ministry. In particular, I thought about the next step, which is seminary, which is sort of like a grad school for pastors in the, in the Christian church. So I chose to go to Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. And so I packed up all and packed away all of my tweed jackets and bought a few extra pairs of cargo shorts and made my way to Orlando. Okay? At first, it was thrilling to be at seminary, right? I sensed God's presence in everything, in like Greek vocabulary cards and casual conversations with classmates from around the world. But over time, like anything, the thrill wore off. I found myself living in a stucco first floor apartment right next to a dumpster, (laughs) sitting in class on collapsible plastic tables with like snaking power cords underneath them, and right across the way was the student lounge, that haven of thrift store furniture that I did felt gross to sit on. So my delicate ego, as you can already tell, sought to comfort myself in the campus chapel, my refuge. But the more I looked at the campus chapel, I couldn't 
help but think about that clock tower. At first charming, but then it looked more and more like a Crayola crown. (laughs) And then there were the offhand comments from family and from friends. Well-meaning, of course, but they would say things like, I've never heard of RTS, or seminary for that matter. Why aren't you going to a divinity school or with an Ivy League name like Princeton or Harvard? Why, why are you here again? And so by the spring of my first year, I found myself in the private school office of a headmaster applying for a teaching job. True story. I told myself I wouldn't quit seminary, but I would just go part-time for a while. You know, one of those deals. I suppose I needed to cut my hand and cast the metaphorical seeds of knowledge once again. Or maybe I wondered whether there was truth, whether there was beauty in a place that felt cheap, generic, and simple. And of course I think that this question about truth and beauty is the question of the audience of the Hebrews in the first century, but also today. And I want to kind of explain this. You see, in the in the first century, the original audience to letter of the Hebrews were, well, Hebrew, right? They were coming from a religious Jewish tradition. And that colored how they felt and how they thought about Christianity. I think one commentator in particular is very helpful on this. He says the original first century audience came from the splendid ancient history. I want you to imagine this for a second. Moses, the prophet founder, standing on a mountain in the middle of thunder and lightning, with a staff, and all of a sudden the angels minister around and swirling, okay? And God, with his very finger, writes on the two tablets, the law that's passed down from generation to generation of faithful forefathers to this very day, with reverence and with awe. Compare this to Christianity's origins, a young man, not much older than they were, raised in a cultural backwater, Nazareth, a carpenter of all trades. Moses raised Egyptian royalty with the best scholarship available, Jesus. He grew up so poor that his family had to give two pigeons instead of a lamb as a sacrifice. And then this son of a carpenter doesn't make up cultural and economic differences by his posse. His entourage and his escort is not angels. Rather, poor fishermen that escort him around Jerusalem. And then think about the the Jewish temple for a second. All the pageantry, all the majesty. Priests dressed in jewels, right? With lethal expertise who studied all the right rituals to sacrifice an animal just a certain way. And then there's this God who dwells in this mysterious inner holy of holy rooms, hidden from view from all but one person one time a year. And compare this again to Jesus, who says he and his ragtag followers are the temple. And to enter into his peasant presence only requires simple prayers at seemingly no cost. In other words, where's the truth? Where's the beauty? And what oftentimes felt very cheap, generic, and simple. And although Christianity is a bit older now and has some more cultural respect in certain pockets of America, I think we're asking the same question here at Davidson. According to philosopher Charles Taylor, we live in a cultural moment that makes believing in Christianity and its truth and its beauty very difficult. Whether we're honest about this or not, people are hurting spiritually and emotionally 
very badly. Okay? And we're and you're asking me, Jesus is asking us to close our eyes and speak towards the ceiling. That feels a bit too simple, doesn't it? There's evil and suffering in the world, and Jesus is not giving us any updates. Where are the new answers to the new problems that happen every single day? Christianity feels a bit cheap and dated, doesn't it? And what about all my friends who seem to be braver and kinder in their embrace of scientific atheism or other more diverse spiritual modes of thought? Compared to these, Christianity feels awfully generic, doesn't it? Tonight, our passage speaks to these deep doubts within us about Jesus, whether they're grounded in first century Judaism or 21st century secularism. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10 tells us, look again at what God is offering us. God has offered us Jesus, the great high priest. And this is what that means. Jesus gives us true sympathy for our weaknesses and beautiful access to the throne of God, to the eternal God. Therefore, we can confidently draw near the throne of grace in prayer. Okay, so let me say it again. Jesus offers us true sympathy for our weaknesses and beautiful access to the eternal God. And so therefore, we can confidently draw to the th- near to the throne of grace in prayer. And like last week, this passage is a piece of incredibly intricate reasoning. Verses 14 through 16 kind of work like an article abstract, right? They summarize what's coming up, and they tell us the summaries in two parts. Jesus is the great high priest who offers sympathy for our struggles and access to God's eternity. Then verses 10, 1 through 10 of chapter 5, they clarify that comment and they explain it. And they get into more detail. And they do this by comparing the Old Testament priesthood to Jesus' superior priesthood. And, we, and it happens systematically. Verse 1 compares to verse 5 and 6. Verse 2 to verse 7. Verse 3 to verses 8 and 9. And finally verse 4 to verse 10. Look, all that's to tell you, not to make you write that down or to think about the correspondence um, or to play Tetris with your Bible. All that's to say why the outline looks kind of complicated. Okay, <laughs> It's not exactly straightforward as a passage, right? It's not going to be neat and tidy. So if you're looking at your outline, you'll see first, Jesus' true sympathy for our weaknesses. And you see this mostly in verse 15 of chapter 4, and then verses 1 through 4 in chapter 7, or verse 7 of chapter 5. And then second, we're going to see Jesus' beautiful access to God's eternity. And we see this in verse 16 of chapter 4, and then verses 5 through 6, and 8 through 10 of chapter 5. Okay, So it's going to feel like we're kind of skipping around the text a little bit, but that's because I'm once again trying to simplify and choose and highlight a few things and not march through a really complicated argument. Why? Because I love you, and I love your time, Okay, and my time. And so we can't do it to the degree that we can do it. Okay, And I'll try to be shorter. I can't promise short, but I can be shorter than I would have been. Okay. <laughs> so let's begin by looking at the passage. Let's look at Jesus, the great high priest, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, okay? In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we see the chief requirements of being a high priest, okay? A high priest. What is the chief requirement? You've got to be human to represent other humans to God. 
You've got to be fully human to represent other humans to God. Why? Because gentleness comes from our own understanding of our weaknesses. That's what verse 2 tells us. So this is kind of obvious, right? When somebody's ignorant, when you see someone ignorant, we as human beings are to consider the ways that we hide our ignorance. When we see somebody who's obviously wayward, we're to consider the more subtle ways in which we're wayward. And that gives us compassion. And that gives us gentleness. But verse 3 points out a problem with this really intricate system. The same human weakness that makes a high priest so very good at, at sympathizing and representing other people, that same human weakness leads to sin. Okay? It leads to a lack of love or a tendency to hurt others, ourselves, the world, God. That's what sin means. And this sin makes the high priest unable to enter the presence of God unless he first sacrifices for himself and for his family. And the high priest's sacrifice for his own sins, and this is really important, is inadequate. It's not meant to be adequate. A pure animal life is not equal as a substitute for an impure human life. They're not of the same order. How is a lamb supposed to represent a human being? Right? It's insufficient. And this is why Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, is so important. And there we read that Jesus is a high priest who can both sympathize with our weakness and temptations, and, and he has no sin. He has no sin. I want to just unpack that for a second. I don't think we can even picture what that looks like, if we're honest. In his mind, in Jesus' mind, in his mouth, in his hands, in his feet, and even in his heart, Jesus has never, ever given in to a single temptation. This means he's never hated anyone. He's never even made a mean joke about someone behind his back or to her face. He's never laid his hands against another human being or walked off in icy anger. Although the thought probably occurred to him because he was tempted, Jesus has never even desired to discount any other human being ever. And maybe you're sitting there going, that makes Jesus feel very remote from me. How is he supposed to represent me? I mean, he seems like that good, quiet girl in your hall, or that nice, sweet tattletale you grew up with in elementary school. Or maybe even the youth leader you had who was so perfect, right? His hair never even had a bad day, right? Every strand of hair was not even in rebellion. But... But Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, argues the exact opposite, which is so interesting. It's so counterintuitive, right? Jesus understands our condition. He understands our temptations to squeeze the good things until they have no life left in them. He understands our desire to bury ourselves in bad things. And he understands and he sympathizes with them all the more because he never gave in. And this sympathy looks like loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. To God, the God who chose not to save him from death for 33 years plus three days in the grave. 
We just don't get what this looks like, right? To resist all our temptations in every respect and then not to sin, right? Severe temptation, if you thought about it, it feels like a building pressure. I'm going to go there for a second, okay? The idea of something haunts us. It presses all of the right emotional pressure points, doesn't it? And even as we resist, temptation has this really subtle whisper. Poor you. God must not love you. You're far, far too gone. You're far too dirty now for God. You might as well just give in. And so most of us, most of the time, do give in. And then we get this bit of pleasure and a boatload of guilt. Okay? But what would it look like to live under that same kind of pressure without that bit of pleasure? What would it look like to hear that whispering voice for an entire lifetime nonstop? Certainly it's hard to imagine what always resisting would look like, but I think it means one thing. Jesus gets it. He understands. In fact, he understands our weaknesses, our temptations, and our desires to sin far better than we do. He understands the pressures and the hurts of being a human being better than anyone who's ever lived. Because he's felt them full force and without relief. I mean, just think of it like if you're asking somebody what a hurricane feels like, you don't ask the person that falls down in the wind the first second. You ask the person that stood strong through 70 miles per hour for the entire hour, right? I mean, does that make sense? You'd ask the person that feels the full force of the wind for longer what it feels like, and that's exactly what Jesus is proposing here, okay? And this is actually why... And it's a curious passage why the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove in his baptism, and then immediately the next thing we read in Mark is he's sent out to the wilderness. Right? That's the very beginning of his earthly ministry. Because Jesus had to know what it felt like from the inside out to be a human being at its most extreme. He had 40 days and 40 nights of thinking about food all the time. Do you realize that Jesus is well acquainted with how we view food? He knows what it's like to want to eat too much. He's know, he knows what it's like to want to eat too little. He knows what it's like to not want to eat at all. And he is with you even right now. Even as we think about dinner or breakfast or how hungry or not hungry we are. And he's uttering prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus had 40 days and 40 nights of sitting in God's silence. Waiting for God to show up in some miraculous way. So that everyone, everyone in that entire place, in the entire world, would know that his Father actually exists. So that Jesus would know that he is once and for all God's child at that lonely moment. Just like we want to know that. Jesus had 40 days and 40 nights of feeling powerlessness, calling out to the God, his Father, who was able to save him and the world from all of this pain and all of this death. And at the same time, he heard the voice of temptation, telling him to do it all himself, to work harder and to lower his expectations, as if changing the world actually started with 24-hour libraries. 
as if changing the world looked like reducing people's problems to only needing a fresh bottle of water and a hug. In other words, Jesus knows exactly what it feels like. He knows exactly what, what God and Christianity feel like. What it feels like when they feel cheap and generic and simple. And he is right there with us in our cultural moment and our personal frustrations. But hear this. He chooses not to believe the lies for 33 years and day, of days and nights. You see, Jesus doesn't downplay suffering. He doesn't insist that everything's fine. How are you? Good. Fine. Better than I deserve. That's not what he says. Jesus doesn't insist that all the bad stuff is remote. It mostly just happens on the news, and sometimes it happens in your neighborhood, and then you get interviewed. Right? Jesus doesn't change the channel on our shame and on our guilt. He sits with us in the darkness. He holds our hands He's a friend. In the words of Henry Nouwen, Jesus has chosen to share our pain. He's chosen to touch our wounds with a gentle and a tender hand. He can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion. He can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement. And he will face with us the reality of our powerlessness. But you know what? Jesus is more than honest He's more than brave with us in the face of darkness. His loud cries and tears on our behalf have been heard because of his sinless reverence. This is so beautiful. And I really, I have to quote someone else, I'm sorry, because he's going to put it better than I could ever put it. Scholar Walter Brueggemann puts this really well. He says, Jesus issues a mighty protest and invites us into a more honest facing of the darkness. This is what it means to be heard in prayer. The reason the darkness may be faced and lived in is that even in the darkness, there's one to address. The one to address is in the darkness, but is simply not a part of the darkness. Because this one has promised to be in the darkness with us. We find the darkness strangely transformed. Not by the power of an easy light, but by the power of relentless solidarity. Out of the fear not of that one spoken in the darkness, we are marvelously given new life, and we know not how. I love that line. We know not how. I like the mystery, sometimes. Jesus doesn't give us information. Okay? He doesn't answer the why questions of disordered eating, or attempt to prove his existence in a world of hurt. Instead, Jesus promises slow but steady transformation of us. Of us. Look, he doesn't dismiss our questions, right? He doesn't deny our hurts. But Jesus transforms our questions. He transforms our hurts. He transforms even our desires. In a way, all of Jesus' ministry as a great high priest points to one single sacrifice. The cross, right? That's exactly what it's about. God deals with evil by suffering it for us. That's what the cross is about. The chief act of evil in the history of the world was put on Jesus' shoulders. 
And this priestly act of Jesus gives us not evil in return, but access and acceptance. Verse 9 calls this the source of eternal salvation. Jesus has done on the cross what no unblemished animal could ever do. Jesus on the cross has done what no human mediator, no human sinful high priest could ever do. He's given us instant and intense access to God. And really, like, eternal salvation, this beautiful access, is what I'm going to spend the rest of the very short time on. Uh, And this is the second main point of our outline. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, tells us about drawing near to God in prayer in the name of the great high priest, Jesus. And it tells us that this prayer in Jesus' name leads to mercy and help. We receive forgiveness for our failures, mercy, and the strength to hold fast to our confession in times of temptation. When we feel weak, when we feel sore. You see, God doesn't promise us what we want. That's so hard for us. He doesn't promise us what we want. He doesn't promise to remove temptations or to eliminate suffering instantly with a snap of his fingers. God instead promises what we need. Acceptance and endurance. Acceptance and endurance. And this is where our passage presses us to consider how we undervalue God's transcendence. How we undervalue our relationship with him. To have that instant, intense acceptance, that admission to the presence of the holy God who sustains and created and saves the planet and the universe. To even get to dwell in his presence, let alone to receive his help and to be heard, is so underestimated by us. And here's, let me give you an example of why that is. Okay? Think about the last time you tried to read the Bible straight through. Okay? You probably got to Leviticus, if you were lucky. Maybe you got tied up in the end of Exodus, okay, with the temple, okay, which is kind of more to my point. But, and you sort of sat there and you sort of said, what do I do? Do I skim this? Do I skip this? Do I stop reading the Bible altogether? And then you asked a question, why in the world is the book of Leviticus in the Bible? Or, maybe you were sort of thumbing through the Bible to get some instruction, right? You were saying, how do I do this whole dating thing? Or should I vote Democrat or Republican? Or maybe you're saying, what should I major in? What should I do with my life as a career? The Bible will have good words for me. And then, and then you saw, wait, there's no passage on any of these topics. But there is Leviticus. Why is that? <coughs> and let me answer that question. Leviticus is in the Bible, along with the other detailed passages about temple construction, to remind us that God is wholly other. He's not like us. We can't approach him like anything or anyone else ever in the history of the universe. Because he's not of the universe. He's over the universe. He's separate from the universe. The universe is his creation. I mean, just consider what Leviticus 16, okay? Yom Kippur is coming up. This is exactly what the holiday comes from. It tells us that Aaron, the original high priest, had... This is just what he had to do to enter the temple that one time as one man, one time a year for a brief period of prayer. This is what he has to do. He has to offer a bull for his and his family's forgiveness. He said, take the blood's bull and he has to sprinkle it on the cover of the ark. 
Okay? Which, by the way, is God's footstool. Just to dwell with God's feet, this is what it takes. Okay? Aaron had to burn incense while entering the most holy place. He had to cast lots over two live goats. Okay? And then brought by the people. He had to kill one goat as a sin offering for the people and take the blood of that and sprinkle it again all over the holy place. He had to take the other other um, goat outside of the holy place and basically Aaron had to put his hands on it and confess all of the sins of all of the people and then drive that goat out into the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat, by the way. But the point is this. God, we are considering that, is that deadly important. It takes that much just to see him once for a brief period of time by the most holy person in all of Israel. That's what the Bible is like at pains to get across. That's why there's no dating section. And that's why Leviticus is there. I'm sorry. Okay. He requires that many sacrifices for one man to come to him one time a year. And this leads to a few big applications for us. You're not entering God's spiritual presence if you're not trusting in Jesus. That is so unpopular, I'm going to say it. Why? Because God's that transcendent. The only way your prayers are heard, the only way you have a relationship with God of the universe, if it's brokered by or mediated by the great high priest Jesus, who's appointed at the eternal order of Melchizedek, a priest who has no genealogy, who represents God himself. You need Jesus's, and I need Jesus' sinless life and sacrificed blood to enter into God's presence. To get eternal access. And look, if you're praying in Jesus' name, here's another really important application. You're heard. I don't care what you feel. Why do you? But on this case. Okay? You're heard. You do have a relationship with the God of the universe. And even in the midst of temptations and heartaches, this means everything. Everything. You see, if Jesus' sympathy points to his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus' admission to God, the the brokering of that relationship, points to Jesus' resurrection and his priestly presence at the right hand of the Father of God. And with Jesus for us, we are unconditionally, absolutely, and forever accepted by the all-powerful yet intimate center of everything that ever is, was, and will be, the God of the universe. So we no longer just have to get to the right next school. We no longer have to get that perfect job, no matter what the physical, emotional, or social cost. We no longer have to be that Davidson student. You know, the one that, gets their, that knows their stuff, the one who cares about all the right issues, the one who says all the right things, the one who gets every grant and fellowship. With Jesus, we no longer have to try so very hard at school, we no longer have to pick up that extracurricular club. We no longer have to be the Christian captain of America. We no longer have to date the right future spouse in the right way. Okay? We no longer have to hang out with the right friends to get the right access to the inner ring of respect and fame forever. We no longer have to find ourselves on that golden contact cell list of the most important and influential people we've ever met. God is inviting us out of the nosebleed section of spectatorship into the midst of the action. Us. You and me, saddle sore with temptation. Us, our stomachs fluttering with doubt. 
Jesus, the great high priest, gives us the ultimate good report. This is the words of C.S. Lewis. Acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking our entire lives will at last be opened. Longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is not a mere neurotic fancy. It's the truest index of the most real situation. To be at last summoned inside that inner ring, right? That inside lane will be both glory and honor beyond all of our merits. So to finish my earlier story, I obviously stayed in seminary and didn't go back to teaching and... That's why I'm here before you, okay? So how did I hold fast in seminary? And here's the question. How do you hold fast to Jesus in the face of pain and hard questions and other very considered answers? We do something generic, but true. We do something simple, but beautiful. We draw near the throne of grace. We offer prayers and supplications, and sometimes that sounds like loud cries and tears. Would you pray with me? Father, it's, uh, it's hard to preach on such hard things and to have such easy answers. Um, and I don't want to... It's hard to not feel like it belittles our experience, but I trust that you've experienced everything in every respect. That your 33 years were packed with the human lives of everyone else that ever existed. That you know the ins and outs of everything that we're struggling with right now. And you're asking us to come to you. And you're asking us to come to God and get eternal and unconditional access. And I pray that you would help us to trust that, whether for the first time here tonight or maybe for the 900th time. I pray that you would help us to draw near to your strength, to your mercy, to your gentle sympathy. That we would know that you hold our hand in the darkness and you're telling it to be gone, first in our own lives and then on this entire universe. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.